thank you. Did you know there's not too many other places in our culture that has corporate singing? Like that where people stand and sing together. The only other place I can think of is like uh, national anthem at sporting events. So thank you for participating. Uh, fall is in the air. Yes. Yes, it is. I almost saw my breath this morning. Okay. The leaves are starting to change color. There's pumpkin spice lattes at every coffee stand in town. And the political ads are back on TV. And the Medicare ads. Okay. If you have been here at all in the last 17 years in October, November, you know that I do all I can not to talk about politics from the front. Okay, that's an abuse of the pulpit, in my opinion, and it's a misuse of the call God has given me to point people to Jesus. So that being said, as I continue, stay with me, okay? I know we've got people on both sides of the political fence and everywhere in between. I'm going to do all I can to offend people equally. I'm going to do all I can not to offend people, okay? The other night, we were watching whatever it was, sporting event, and a political ads come on, and my wife just groans, right? Doesn't matter which party it is. I mean, you, you've got candidates that you like, and you've got candidates that you don't like. But when those ads come on, you feel something, Right? You feel something. If it's a candidate you like, you're like, oh, good, can't wait to vote for him. And if it's a candidate you don't like, you feel anger, right? You feel upset because you, you wonder how in the world could that candidate or that party have gotten so far away from what is good and true and noble and the, the party that Jesus would vote for. Okay, and then, and then at the, ah, ah, so you got anger, right? And then you get to the end of the ad, and you realize this ad wasn't even paid for by the candidate. It was paid for by a special interest group. Yeah. This, this was paid for by friends of so-and-so. We support them. Vote for them. Right? You, you know what I'm talking about? Are you, like, did you check out because I said the word politics? Come back. Okay? Come back. My guess is or I hope that, or maybe it doesn't happen, when you feel that anger, if you can get past that anger, maybe something deep down, you feel grief, right? You feel deeply saddened that, that maybe our country has gone to such a place to where, you know, you just, you're moved. But then, of course, you come back to the end of the ad and you get angry again. Listen, Jesus never had to watch political commercials, but boy, did he ever have to deal with politics. And he felt angry, and he felt deeply saddened, and he interacted with special interest groups. He did. Have I piqued your interest, or are you ready to leave? Mike, are the donuts here? Do we just want to start that now? <laughs> Would more people stay if we just ate donuts? Maybe I should give them now so that they stay. Let's pray. God, I know that my role is to do all I can to take away any barriers from people experiencing Jesus. And Lord, I don't want to say or do anything this morning that would put up a wall. So Lord, as we engage with your text, would you give us your eyes and your heart to see your moving and working in your story? I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Grab your Bible. If you haven't yet, turn to Mark chapter 2, verse 18. 
Let me remind you what we're doing in the Gospel of Mark. We're taking this long, slow walk, looking at who Jesus lets in. By in, I mean who he's letting into his experience with the gospel, um, his experience with himself, his, uh, his interactions, his, his love, just who he connects with and who he engages with. That's what we're looking for. Title of our sermon series is Offensive Christianity, Who's In, Who's Out? And much like when I say politics, people hear that title and they're like, <gasps> right? But realistically, what we're looking at is something Rachel Held Evans said uh, six plus two equals eight, eight years ago when she said the gospel is not offensive because of who it keeps out, but because of who it lets in. And that's why we're looking at who Jesus lets in. Last week, we finished with Jesus inviting in a a corrupt, crazy tax collector that nobody would have liked. And we looked and we saw him go to Levi's house and actually probably do a little bit of hosting of the party that was going on. Bill, did I talk about politics? Are you, you just need more coffee because you need to stay awake. So last week we finished with Levi, all right? Somebody, nobody would have invited over for dinner. This week we jump into Mark chapter 2, verse 18. Once when John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, some people came to Jesus and asked him, why don't your disciples fast like John's disciples and the Pharisees do? But Jesus replied, Do wedding guests fast while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. They can't fast while the groom is with them, but someday the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. Besides, verse 21, who would patch old clothing with new cloth? For the new patch would shrink and rip away the old cloth, leaving an even bigger tear than before. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. For the wine would burst the wineskins, and the wine and the skins would both be lost. New wine calls for new wineskins. Huh. Fasting. It's an interesting topic. Jesus' response, just as interesting. And I had written down like another two or three minutes to explain fasting and to explain the Jewish practice of doing it on Mondays and Thursdays and how there was only one day of atonement. And then I remembered this series is all about looking at who Jesus lets in. So I'm going to encourage you guys this week, read the words in red in your scripture in in the end of Mark chapter 2 and spend some time thinking about that. All right? I want to look specifically at verse 18 and see who Jesus is interacting with here. It says, once the When the disciples of John and the Pharisees were fasting, some people came to Jesus and asked him, why don't your disciples fast like John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples, okay? So who was coming and asking the question? We could say it was a disciple of John. would probably be right. We could say it was a a Pharisee, and we'd probably be right. But we could also say we don't know, and we'd probably be right, okay? The Greek itself is not very specific as to who it is. The Greek simply says they— So as I read this text over and over, I thought to myself, what if this isn't somebody from either group, but somebody exploring the faith, right? Someone who's trying to look at the different faith traditions and and figure out which one do I want to be a part of. It'd be like somebody today coming in and seeing that the Seventh-day Adventists, they uh, they don't drink caffeine, but then walking into our church and seeing we've got a coffee keg, or three of them, in the back, Or then going to the Bible church down the street and realizing they have a full-on coffee stand with a barista in their foyer. 
Right? So if I was to have a conversation with somebody, someone would come up to me and say, Pastor, why is it that the church that meets here on Friday and Saturday doesn't drink coffee, but then you guys have like jugs of them on Sundays, and I can get a iced caramel upside down macchiato with soy milk and light on a caramel at the church down the street? Why is that, Pastor? I wonder if this is what's going on with Jesus. You know, maybe these were kind of like different denominations, different people who were seeking to follow God and yet wanted to know which one was the best way to follow. I tell you what, if I was there, I saw John's disciples fasting, I saw the Pharisees fasting, and I saw Jesus' guys eating, (laughs) I'm going with Jesus. Amen? There's a couple of y'all like, amen, let's stick with him. Hmm. I love the fact that Jesus didn't say, you have to sign on a dotted line of a doctrinal statement before I engage with you. He simply told them stories. Now, confusing stories as it pertains to fasting, but he told them stories. I see this as Jesus letting them in, the spiritual seekers, those that are asking questions. He's saying, let me engage with you. And again, I encourage you, this week, study the words in red. Figure out, do I want to take up the spiritual practice of, of, of fasting more or less? Uh, so you guys do that this week. Today, I'm going to keep going. That sound good, Tommy? Perfect. I'm going to keep going. Um, Mark chapter 2, verse 23. One Sabbath day, as Jesus was walking through some grain fields, his disciples began breaking off heads of grain to eat. But the Pharisees said to Jesus, look, why are they breaking the law by harvesting grain on the Sabbath? And Jesus said to them, haven't you ever read in the scriptures what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He went into the house of God during the days when Abiathar was the high priest, and he broke the law by eating the sacred loaves of bread that only the priests are allowed to eat. And then he gave some to his companions. And then Jesus said in verse 27, the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people and not meet the requirements and not people meet the requirements of the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even over the Sabbath. There's a good hundred sermons in that text. You ever heard one on it? Probably. I've probably preached one on it. All right? What the disciples were doing was perfectly permissible. In the Old Testament law, Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 25, it says, And when you enter your neighbor's field of grain, you may pluck the heads of grain with your hand but you must not harvest with a sickle, okay? So the disciples were doing something perfectly permissible, but they were doing it on their walk to church. Mark 3 verse 1 says they were on their way to the synagogue, which took the perfectly permissible to impermissible. Track it with me? At least that's what the people who were engaging with Jesus at that time said and thought. One of the big rules, one of the big ten rules for the Jewish people was don't work on the Sabbath. What did that mean? Oh, years of conversation, years of debate, 39 different categories of work, each with different subcategories of what it laid out to be. Four of those subcategories were reaping, winnowing, threshing, and preparing a meal. All four of which the Pharisees said, your disciples are breaking. They would have cited Exodus 34, 21 as their proof text. And here's where it gets fun. Okay? According to a uh, scholarly commentary that I read, among the scribes, it was assumed that the teacher was responsible for the behavior of his disciples. I am so glad I'm not responsible for your behavior. <laughs> Amen. Thank you, Lord. 
behave. For this reason, the Pharisees addressed their protest directly to Jesus and not to the, Pharise- and not to the disciples who were plucking the heads of grain. They raised this question of halakha, is what it is. What's, what's permitted and what's prohibited? And they do this perhaps with the intention of satisfying the legal requirement of a warning prior to prosecution for Sabbath violation. Well, isn't that nice? They're giving Jesus a warning before they take him to Sunday school court. That's so kind of them. Well, in the method of halakha or halakha, Jesus would have been required to state his case and then cite a biblical text to prove his case, which he does. Right? Verse 25, haven't you ever read in the scriptures what David did and what his companions did when they were hungry? Jesus says, haven't you ever read and haven't you ever heard? Now, these, these guys were smart that were interacting with Jesus in the fields on the way to church. They were, we're going to talk about them in a second. They were smart. They might have picked up what Jesus was throwing down. Okay? By citing this story, if you don't know the story, uh, brief history, David... Uh, the guy who became king of Israel, had been anointed king by Samuel already. But he hadn't risen to the throne yet because uh, King Saul was still alive, and King Saul was chasing him, trying to kill him, and that's why David was tired and hungry and running, and he had to go into the temple or the, the synagogue, wherever it was, where the high priest was, and take the bread you know, because David was on the run. And he had yet to ascend to his throne. By citing this passage, Jesus did not say David was not wrong. He said David broke the law. And Jesus does not say, my disciples aren't doing anything wrong. Jesus flips the script, and I think the, the, the Pharisees would have known this. By, by sharing this story, Jesus is essentially saying, hey, I'm the king. I've been anointed at my baptism by the Father, but I have yet to ascend to my throne. But because I'm the true king and I have followers, if we're hungry, we might be able to go outside the tradition of the normal traditions. You tracking with me? And if, if the Pharisees heard what he was saying, oh, they would have, just like we respond to a political commercial, they would have been like, this is the best word for it, grr. I looked that up in English, you know what it means? <laughs> grr. <laughs> Them would have been fighting words to the Pharisees. Now, we have not specifically looked at the Pharisees yet in this slow journey through Mark. We're going to do that today. Last week, we mentioned the scribes of the Pharisees. Today, the actual Pharisees. Who were they? What were they like in Jesus' time? What do we even know about them? I did some study this past week, and we actually don't have too many documents about the Pharisees before A.D. 70. So if Jesus lived in A.D. 30, that means there's about 40 years before we really started to get more documents about the Pharisees. The documents that we do have are the four Gospels, a couple of words from Josephus in one of his historical writings, and a couple of phrases in First and Second Maccabees. So through those sources, scholars tried to piece together some sort of common understanding of the Pharisees in Jesus' time. All right, I'm going to read from the Dictionary of the New Testament, page 786. (laughs) I thought you guys would groan, too, just like the political commercials. (laughs) This is what scholars conclude about the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a lay association. They, They were not a priestly association. They were a lay association that was thought to be experts in the law. They were, in a sociological sense, brokers of power 
between the aristocracy and the masses, and they promoted their special living tradition in addition to biblical laws. Can I say it how it is when it doesn't sound like it's in the dictionary? The Pharisees were a special interest group. If I had a mic, it'd be like... The Pharisees were a special interest group. They didn't hold official office. I didn't know this until this past week of study. They did not hold official office, but they had tremendous power. They had a tremendous sway in the court of public opinion. They knew God's law inside and out. And they followed God's law with their traditions inside and out. And anybody who didn't follow it in the same way that they followed it, they looked down upon. They shunned. They shooed out. They were a religious and political pressure group. This commercial was paid for by the Pharisees because that person who's running for office reads the Bible the same way we do and acts the same way we do, so we support them. They were self-chosen. They had no authority to make or enforce laws, yet they were the most influential group in the Jewish community. Now, I started thinking about who that would be today. And I started thinking of special interest groups, and again, who I could offend on each side of the fence. I'm not going to tell you which group it is, but there was a couple groups in their definition, their explanation of who they were, that said they seek to influence politics, faith, and public policy through the lens of their interpretations of Scripture. Wow. I'd always thought the Pharisees held official office or some sort of specific role in the church, but they didn't. And listen, some of these Pharisees were devout, holy men. They were seeking to follow God with all their heart. Don't, don't think I'm throwing them under any buses, okay? These are guys that, Kyle, where are you at? He's not in here? Uh, he's got four daughters. These are guys that I will say, Kyle, let your daughters marry them, because they were truly seeking to follow God and his ways, that was probably the majority of them. But there were a few, as there are in any group, that, well, were not so good. They were the self-appointed morality police or scribal law police. Uh, they would wander around looking for people who broke the rules. So essentially, they were the paparazzi in Galilee. We only know of one, one named Pharisee. That was a guy named Paul who actually happened to write about half of our New Testament. And in Philippians 3 verse 5, he says, I am a member, was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. And then three verses later, he said that zealousness was dung. But that's for a different sermon and a different day. You get in the picture of who the Pharisees were? Again, I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to paint them in a bad light, but they were extremely devout. They were zealous. They were deeply conservative Jewish law followers wanting to hold everybody to account for their actions, especially if their actions differed from what the Pharisees' actions did. So you get this Jesus character who comes along, and he seems to be thumbing his noses at the Pharisees' traditions. He seems to be gathering an influence of more and more people, which means the Pharisees have less and less influence with those people. And the Pharisees don't really like it. So on the way to church, they engage with him about plucking the heads of grain on the wheat. We got the picture of who the Pharisees are? Okay, again, they were devout. And they're in our next story too, Mark chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Jesus went into the synagogue again and noticed a man with a deformed hand. Since it was the Sabbath, Jesus' enemies watched him closely. If he healed the man's hand, they planned to accuse him of working on the Sabbath. 
Jesus said to the man with the deformed hand, come, stand up here, stand in front of everyone. So then he turned to his critics and asked, does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath, or is it a day for doing evil? Is this a day to save a life or destroy it? But his critics would not answer him. He looked around at them. Jesus looked around at them angrily and was deeply saddened by their hard hearts. And then he said to the man, hold out your hand. So the man held out his hand, and it was restored. At once, the Pharisees went away and met with the supporters of Herod to plot how to kill Jesus. What are you thinking, Jesus? I mean, you're out walking in the fields on your way to the synagogue. You run across these guys that are going to the same church you are. Just let them go in, and you go to the one down the street. Right? Are you looking for a fight? Jesus didn't back down from a challenge. I mean, if we're watching this scene play out on the big screen, you sense the tension immediately, right? Jesus walks in. He sees the man with the deformed hand. He looks around, sees all of his enemies, who we're not told in verse 1 or 2 who those enemies are, but in verse 6, we come back to the Pharisees, so we're going to assume it's them. We see them looking at the man with the deformed hand. It's just like, you know, it's tense. They're looking, they're looking, they're waiting to see who's going to make the first move. And what happens? Jesus calls the man up. Hey, come here. Come here. Stand here. And then he turns and talks to everybody else. Oh, I read this text over and over and over again, and I really wanted to say that Jesus had this intimate moment with this guy whose hand that he just healed. I really wanted, to, I wanted it to say that Jesus reached out and he touched him, and it came, and it came back. The more times I read this, the more I thought Jesus is using this guy as a pawn in this debate with the Pharisees. Now, I'm not trying to paint Jesus in a bad light because that would be really bad, okay? I know better than that. But that's what it seemed like. We have some historical sources that say this guy was a mason, did it for a living. And there's historical tradition that uh, in the Greek, the, the, when it talks about his hand, it actually it, it doesn't say that he, he was born with it like that, that it, but that it was injured later in life. All right? So the historical tr- tradition is that this mason came to the synagogue, told Jesus, I'm tired of begging for my food. Can you heal my hand? And Jesus did that. All right? We don't have all of that in our text. Um, if that was the case, fantastic. But we don't have that in here. What I see is Jesus pulling this man who probably just wanted to come and worship, right? Pulling him to the front and then engaging in this dialogue, monologue, with the people who were opposing him. Now, same question, same issue as outside the church in the grain fields. Working on the Sabbath. The Jews did not work on the Sabbath, but they did make exceptions. If it was a life and death situation, they would make the exception that you could work, or you could do good, all right? But they didn't want just random people working on the Sabbath. Uh, Gospel of Luke, Jesus heals a a woman who had been um, bent over double for 18 years with an evil spirit, and the ruler of the synagogue is, uh, let's just say he's not happy. Um, Luke chapter 13, verse 14, but the leader in charge of the synagogue was indignant. It's a strong word was indignant that Jesus had healed her on the Sabbath. There are six days a week for working. He said to the crowd, come on those days to be healed, not the Sabbath. Come on Monday. Come on Tuesday. Don't come today. This woman had been crippled for 18 years. This was not a life or death situation. She could have come back the next day. 
the man in our story. Who knows how long his hand had been deformed. It wasn't life or death. But Jesus asked this great question, is it right to do good on the Sabbath? Did you catch, did you catch what he says in there? He's alluding to their, to their asterisks in the rule. Is, it, is this a day to save a life or to destroy it? Jesus is playing their game. Not their game, because they took it really, really seriously. Is it right to work on the Sabbath? About 10 to 12 years ago, we did something called Outside the Walls. Anybody remember that? Raise your hand if you were here. Okay, so a few of you. Um, For those that weren't here, uh, you missed out, but today you get donuts, so that's even better. Uh, We partnered with a couple other churches to, on a Sunday morning, go out into the community and do some service projects. Now, we as a church had a, had a uh, baptism service right before going out. It was probably my favorite Sunday in the last 17 years. And then we went out and we helped a couple who couldn't do their yard work because they were struggling with their health. And we did a summer's worth of yard work in one morning for them. Uh, we had a group go down to the Native American Health Center down on Maxwell and Mission. And they cleaned up their parking lot and they painted new stripes. We had another group, I think, from another church go down to the Martin Luther King Center. Uh, it was glorious. I thought we were doing good. Oh, and I got some serious pushback from some people about us working on the Sabbath. This debate has been going on for over 2,000 years. It's still not close to being solved. So Jesus enters into this debate. And he says, is it right to do good deeds on the Sabbath? Or is it a day for the evil? Is it right to save a life or to destroy it? And we could talk more about working on a Sabbath, but we're looking at who Jesus is letting in. Who's he's engaging? And he's engaging these Pharisees. He's engaging these people who he's having conflict with. When I know conflict is coming, you want to know where I go if the conflict is here? <laughs> I'm going there. Now, I've learned to deal with it because it's part of my job, but I don't like it. Jesus steps right into the middle of it. I mean, he could have gone to the synagogue down the street, but no, he steps in and says, hey, we, just, we were talking out there. We're going to finish this conversation right now. Is it right? Is it not? Let's go. It may get heated, but let's figure this out. I see Jesus inviting in these people who are questioning him into the dialogue, into the discussion, whether or not they agree with him. He's saying, let's talk. And they don't want to talk. Because as verse 6 says, at once... The Pharisees went away and met with the supporters of Herod to plot how to kill Jesus. Not only did they not engage, they joined another uh, political pressure group, another special interest group that they would have never engaged with normally. Okay? The, the supporters of Herod, oh, you engage with them, you're unclean. But because they had a common enemy now, they were willing to bend their traditions just a little bit. I really wrestled, how should I end this message, right? I thought, well, should I give this charge to everybody to turn up the, the political commercials and, uh, or to turn them off or, or what? Well, really it came down to me just really wrestling with what I need to do with this text. Uh, I know people that I don't see eye to eye with. Surprising for a pastor? I don't get along with everybody. Okay, and uh, oftentimes in Octobers and Novembers, uh, 
the differences are elevated a bit. Let's just say I wouldn't take a car trip with them, all right? But as I started looking at this, I started wondering, okay, Jesus invites in those who see things differently than him to engage with him. So is he calling me to do the same? Is he calling me to step into the discomfort, into the conflict? I don't know. I hope not. But I'm willing to ask him. I'm willing to say, all right, Jesus, is this what you want me to get out of this text? So here's my question for you. What's God saying to you through what we've looked at? Talk to Jesus about it. And then if he's saying something, probably a good idea to listen. Amen? Let's pray. God, we live in a, in a, in a country, a culture, a time where everything is heated, where it is easy to offend where there are special interest groups that don't even hold office but may hold more sway in the court of public opinion. Lord, I want our sway to be a sway that points people to you. I want our sway to be one where we follow your example. And if you want us to engage with those who see things differently than us, help us to do so in a way that... uh, that further damage is not done. I don't know how that's going to be, Lord. And I don't know what all you're calling everybody else in here to do with this text today. But I'll be willing to ask you if you want me to engage with people I don't normally see eye to eye with this week. And if you want me to, I will. But I'll only do it with your help. And I pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 All right. Hey, I'm supposed to give some